you were on the short line with me, weren't you? Yes. You were, because I remember yeah. your name tag and your face as we were going up. Yeah. Do you remember what I said to you when we got right above the trees? I don't. <laughs> I said, is this a bad time to mention I'm afraid of heights? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do remember it. Shortness of breath, fatigue, and feeling like you can't take another step are as common in the mountains as blisters, mosquito bites, and chapped lips. It's true that we can expect a certain amount of unpleasantness on most outdoor adventures. And in a lot of ways, the unforgiving nature of the mountains and how we put our bodies to the test each time we go out are a big reason why we choose to leave the comforts of our soft and cozy human-made environments in the first place. But on March 29, 2023, skier Dave Brown felt a sudden onset of extreme fatigue that was entirely new to him and terribly serious. At 67 years old, the former ski patroller had never had any previous medical issues but during a backcountry ski tour at Mel Cabin on the west side of Teton Pass, he knew he needed to get help and get it fast. This is The Fine Line, and I'm your host, Matt Hansen. In this episode, we'll hear how Dave Brown was able to get out of the backcountry with his life, and Teton County Search and Rescue volunteer Keegan File explains how the team responds to life-threatening emergencies in a deep, timbered ravine where simply locating a patient can be challenging. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Thank you for supporting this podcast and your local first responders. After a quick word, we'll be right back with Dave Brown and Keegan File. The Fine Line is presented by Roadhouse Brewing Company supporting backcountry safety and the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. Roadhouse is a certified B Corp, best for the world company, helping to preserve this beautiful land we call home. The Roadhouse Pub and Eatery is located on the square in downtown Jackson, and look for their beer and cans at a store near you. Visit roadhousebrewery.com. The Fine Line is also presented by Steo. At home in the Tetons, Steo lives and loves the mountain life. Time spent outside on trails, in rivers, and on summits inspires everything they create. That's why Steo is committed to a higher standard of sustainability, using responsible materials like Blue Sign approved textiles, organic cotton, RDS certified down, and recycled fabrics whenever possible. In their 11th year, Steo supports causes that protect our most treasured places and encourages diversity of access. Most recently, Steo has become a climate neutral certified company. Let the outside in at steo.com. I didn't really start backcountry until about six years ago. And I spent all those years skiing resorts. And my favorite line was that, you know, God invented chairlifts. So why would people go in the backcountry? And then I started doing it and fell in love with it. So it was, you know, just one of those things. My name is Dave Brown. been living in Idaho Falls for the last 32 years. Originally grew up in Southern California. 
but I've been skiing for over 50 years, moved to Idaho to work for the Idaho National Lab, uh, worked there for 27 years, and then I retired five years ago. And so since retirement, we've spent a lot of time with grandkids, traveling, skiing, backcountry, hiking, and skiing. I think my real favorite is Grand Targhee. I We've been skiing there for about 30 years and just love the family friendliness and the powder, of course, and just the smaller resort. But we've skied all over. We ski Jackson Hole, Big Sky, uh, Whitefish, Montana. My wife and I lead the Europe ski trips for the Idaho Falls Ski Club. So every other year we take a group over to different spots in Europe. So that's been a fun, fun adventure. And then as I retired five years ago, I kind of moved over to this group with uh, Eric Williams and Mike Goblenis. And those were kind of our ski pod. And as COVID came on, we were doing probably more backcountry than resort skiing as, as that became necessary. And so the night before, we started talking about going backcountry for that for Wednesday. And so we checked the conditions and decided that, you know, we had done a couple of resort days. We we're going to go have a nice backcountry day. And Mike O'Blenis, who normally goes with us, he was busy that day. So instead of our three, our pot of three, we had two. Eric and I just planned our normal pickup. We checked the weather and the avalanche conditions. And, you know, we're, we always have our packs ready to go in our backcountry gear. So we just packed our lunches. Uh, he picked me up normal time and we headed up. That week, this was going to be our third day that week skiing. And the earlier two days were up at Targhee, and they were very good powder days. Okay, hold on. Just to point out here that Dave is being pretty modest. Those days in late March in the Tetons were exceptionally good powder days. On March 25th, four days before Dave went skiing at Mel Cabin, Grand Targhee recorded more than 30 inches of snow overnight. For anyone who happened to be at Targhee that day, it was some of the deepest snow they'd ever skied. And no less, this storm came toward the end of one of the snowiest seasons ever for the Tetons, which on March 29th had a total snowfall of 550 inches for the year and a total snow depth of 12 and a half feet. Though Dave's backcountry experience started about six years ago, he's no stranger to skiing in the Tetons. He was a ski patroller for 13 years, first at Snow King in the mid-90s, then at Kelly Canyon, Idaho, and then for about 10 years at Grand Targhee. At first, it was really hard. And then I learned that I got in my own head, and you just learned how to set your own pace. And it just it's just a relaxing and enjoyable thing to be in the backcountry. We do bump into skiers in the backcountry, but so often we run into people we know. You know, and it's just this is a community with with people out of Victor, Driggs, and Jackson, and it's, it's a good community. So I just enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. So you, you park at Coal Creek and cross the road and head up the canyon, and the creek is coming down. And this year the creek was the— normally there's a bridge there that you have to cross— and this year there was so much snow, there were natural snow bridges. And we actually crossed in an area I had never crossed before because there was just so much snow. And it's just a beautiful, calm mile and a half up the canyon and shady and nice. And then there's 
kind of the Y in the road and you can go to East Mail Cabin or stay right and go to West. And this day we headed to East Canyon and took the turn and headed on up. And, you know, it was just a beautiful day. And we really, I think we only saw one other small group as we were skinning in on the way in. So it, it was a pretty quiet day. Don't be giving away all your secrets. After like the 10,000 people that listen to this, everyone's going to be skiing mail cabin. And Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name's Keegan File. I'm originally from Washington State out on the Olympic Peninsula. I've been in Jackson since 2002, so I guess 20-plus years now. Moved here initially just to be a ski bum. Um, and then my love for the valley grew, and uh, now I'm a nurse in the emergency room here in Jackson. I've been a volunteer on search and rescue since 2015, and with them I provide medical care uh, for patients uh, when needed, as well as I'm a member of the short haul team, which allows us to get into some more technical terrain uh, similar to what uh, Dave Brown was in. Basically, we we got to the kind of the ascent where you start up the skin track up moose brush and we just went ahead and dropped a layer to get a little cooler because you know we're going to be hiking climbing and we started the normal track up eric always leads he's six foot three or so big guy and so i'm just right behind him and we were heading up the track like normal and got about a third of the way up the regular climb and i started to have trouble catching my breath i Thought, well, you know, I'm going to push through this a little bit. And then I thought, well, no, I'll stop for my usual 10 seconds and catch my breath. And that wasn't working. And so that's when I started to really realize that I couldn't catch my breath. And I actually took my pack off and I actually sat down, which I've never had to do on a skin track, whether it was for a day trip or going back into a yurt where I'm carrying a full pack. And so I knew that I was having a problem. And Eric had skied a little bit ahead, and so I just stopped and rested, and a couple minutes, Eric called down to me to check on me, and I kind of indicated that I was having a problem, so he just, you know, turned around and skin, skied back down to me, and I started to describe the symptoms I was having, which was shortness of breath, a little bit of pain in my left arm and my jaw, tightness, so we pretty much thought, you know, this isn't this isn't right and Eric immediately he had aspirin in his pack which is great because I I always pack Advil and Eric had aspirin so he pulled out aspirin and I took a couple aspirin and we sat there and rested for a few minutes and talked about you know what what we're going to do next we decided that our best point we're on kind of the steep climb and thinking you know you know, we have no cell reception there. And this is one of the things, um, my friend Mike that normally skis with us, he has a Garmin inReach, which has satellite communication for SOS. And we didn't have that that day. So, you know, we're thinking about it and we don't have reception. So we decided to go ahead and go off the skin track and go into the gully and had to make like three big turns to ski down to the lower the flat traverse and that took us probably 10 minutes having to stop at each kind of turn I just had to stop and catch my breath um, so we did that and got down to the lower 
the flatter section of the traverse and again having to rest quite a bit and so then we just started to work our way down the traverse and we went a few hundred yards and ran into a group of three guys coming up the other way and so we stopped and talked with them and explained our situation and they were really helpful uh, it was interesting i've got a daughter up in uh, columbia falls montana and they were from columbia whitefish area mm-hmm. and so they were three guys they had skied the day before up there and so we're telling them and one of them happened to have nitroglycerin so i'm you know they're having trouble breathing and so he gave me nitroglycerin and we talked for another five or ten minutes and then i started feeling a little bit better after resting for a little bit after resting for like five to ten minutes and so eric and i decided at that point we'll go ahead and push you know head toward the parking lot again and at that point we're mile and a half to two miles from the parking lot and so at that point they basically said okay we're going to head the other direction continue up and we did get their uh, one of the guys phone numbers and name and eric got that and so then we headed toward the parking lot and we probably made it another 300 yards kind of 100 yards at a time and i would be out of breath so we'd stop and rest 100 and, yards and that was going downhill yeah, I that was going downhill wow. yeah and so finally i just stopped eric and said you know i'm i don't think i can make it all the way out to the parking lot we made that conscious decision at that point that's when we we stopped and it was just the two of us and we went ahead and got out my my puffy and warm clothes and wool hat and everything and kind of bundled me up got me set and then eric headed for the car you know knowing that he would have to you know ski out to the car he did so and headed up teton pass far enough to where he could get cell reception to call for call 911 and get search and rescue rolling wow so, i didn't realize he skied out and then drove up the pass i thought he skinned back up the skin track to get reception yeah no he he ended up skiing <clears throat> all the way to the car going up the passaways making the call and so the the whole thing started at about 10:30 is when i started having symptoms i'm not sure what time you guys actually arrived but it you know, it's it'll probably be in your report, but it was you yeah. Know, it looks like we got the page, the board page for you. It came in at about eleven fifty. So that's basically uh, how that works: is mm-hmm. your friend Eric Williams calls nine one one, gets a hold of dispatch, and then dispatch calls us, um, search and rescue, and then a board page goes out. Okay. Uh, so that came in at eleven fifty one. It looks like okay. And so as I was waiting, so I I was there on East Cabin, you know, on the East Leg, and I waited for about 45 to 50 minutes, and I was getting cold, and I was, you know, going through in my head that, okay, search and rescue, I don't know if they're coming in with a helicopter or if they're going to come in with sleds up the trail, but I did know that there's really only one way in and out. I decided I was feeling better, and I was cold and I thought I'm going to move a little bit keep heading toward the parking lot I probably made it another three or four hundred yards I made it back to where the east leg joins in with the west leg so I was on the main uh, mail cabin 
And I ran into a young gal coming the other way with her dog. And, you know, we kind of greeted each other the normal greeting. And I told her that, yeah, I thought I was having a heart attack. And she was wonderful. She said, well, I'm just going to stay here with you. And so we just stood there and talked. And I, at that point, I knew I probably wasn't going to make it to the car for a very long time if I kept going. And so she stayed there with me. And after a few minutes, we saw the first the helicopter coming in and circling over. This is the point that we could see that it, the helicopter was going up to East Mail Cabin where Eric had reported I had been. And that was probably my biggest, you know, the error that I made was moving. I should have stayed put. And the nice thing also at that moment was right as we first saw the helicopter circling to the east of us, Eric popped back up. So Eric had skied out, driven up, called 911, gotten search and rescue rolling. Then he got back down to the parking lot and then skinned back in to provide help. So he was back there with me, with this young gal. And I didn't, she probably gave me her name, but I don't recall her name. Mm. A couple questions. You said your friend Eric Williams had aspirin. He did. Is that something he always carries or it just happened to be this day that he had some aspirin? Do you guys he, carry first aid kits? Or? He, we do have first aid kits yeah. and he he carries it all the time. All the time. That's yeah. a blessing. Yes. For sure. And then, yeah, I do remember we got the board page and it was for East. I think that if I recall correctly, it was for East Mail Cabin, approximately two miles up. So Steve Wilson's our the pilot. Um, Tim Seo Carlin was our spotter uh, that day. And then it was uh, myself and a couple other short haul members in the back. And I remember us flying. You said five minutes. I felt like it was half hour you know that we were flying around and maybe that was just me you know like mm-hmm. board page comes in for a 60 plus year old male you know having heart attack symptoms and so time's of the essence for us you know and for you obviously and uh we saw a couple other ski groups we we're following all the skin tracks up and down yeah and then it wasn't until we dropped way back down the canyon uh that i think tim seal carlin if i recall uh who's, who was the spotter I think spotted you guys first yeah. and the dog and you guys were waving to us and uh, we were so grateful that we had spotted you guys because we were calling dispatch and asking them if the coordinates were actually correct and if you guys were actually up East Mail Cabin because we had bumped over to West Mail Cabin a couple mm-hmm. times but we were way further up the canyon just because we were expecting the two mile thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was grateful when we finally located you. Uh, which I remember in your case, I remember seeing the dog from the air. We saw two people, I think, probably your friend uh, Eric, Eric Williams yeah. and then the gal with the dog. Um, and you guys were just kind of standing there. And then after we kind of circled a couple of times, we saw you. You were just sitting. So it was pretty clear. You guys were obviously making some hand signals and stuff to us, but it was pretty clear that that was the group that we were looking for. And then I remember that mail cabin, for people that don't know, is – a pretty tight, you know, ravine, if you will, and it's surrounded by pretty dense trees, especially down low where you guys were. And um, with short haul uh, capabilities, we, you know, can insert into very tight technical terrain. But it does take, although a short period of time, it does take a little bit of time to rig the helicopter. We don't come into uh, you with people on the short haul line, you know. Right. Um, so once we locate a party, we have to fly to an LZ, set up the rope, 
attach the short haul members that are going to be inserted to that rope and then insert them in. But in your case, you know, we get this call for a gentleman that's possibly having a heart attack, time's of the essence. We know that's going to take a little bit of time to rig the ship for short haul. Um, and I remember Steve Wilson and Tim Seal Carlin, the spotter, uh, and then all of us, you know, it's always a discussion in the ship, um, kind of seeing a pretty small hole, if you will, amongst the trees uh, where Steve thought he could, you know, comfortably set down the helicopter pretty close to you guys, not right on top of you, but pretty close. And I, I remember that day being very impressed with Steve's a phenomenal pilot. Um, and, you know, lots of times with helicopters, you want to come in from uh, a distance. So you're kind of coming in, you know, at a slow angle uh, to your LZ, if you will. And this, we didn't really have the ability to come in at an angle like that. It was just basically we were hovering over you and Steve just had to go straight down to the creek uh, right by you. And I remember just being very impressed with his skills and just the overall awareness that everyone in the ship had that day uh, by keeping, you know, the tail rotor clear of the trees uh, behind the helicopter, the trees in front of the helicopter. And then, you know, there's a dog uh, and we're making sure, you know, you're always concerned about if that dog's not being held, you know, we can't yell at you. You guys can't hear us. So we can't say, make sure your dog's on leash. So that's always a concern. So there's so many things going on, but uh, Steve and Tim and the whole group did such a great job able to land the ship very close to you. So we didn't have to take that extra minute or, or five minutes or so to rig the ship for a short haul. And we were able to get right down to you. And then Dr. Wheeler, uh, Dr. AJ Wheeler was the first one to kind of get out of the ship, uh, went up to you to yeah. kind of start assessing the situation. And then Chase Lockhart and I started kind of gathering all the medical equipment and things like that, short haul gear to extract you and uh, take care of you. And that was something that definitely I recall. I could see you guys go a little bit down the canyon from us to to drop your team off. And Eric skied down and saw you guys actually unload. And then he came back around the corner. So he told me about that afterwards, which sounded very impressive. And just the fact that you guys, your team was right that close and to me, as fast as you were, once the helicopter, once you were able to touch down, was really impressive. And I guess, AJ, I haven't really met him other than at the actual scene. And, I mean, he quickly had an AED on me and monitoring my heart and oxygen. So that all, you know, with my ski patrol days, that all felt good. You know, as yeah. I, I knew I was starting to get care already right there in the backcountry. So a lot of relief. You know, seeing the helicopter was one level of relief. Then then actually having medical care starting, that was huge. You were on the short line with me, weren't you? Yes. You were, because I remember yeah. your name tag and your face as we were going up. Yeah. Do you remember what I said to you when we got right above the trees? I don't. I, I said, is this a bad time to mention I'm afraid of heights? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do remember. And I remember uh, chuckling about that and then also just... When we got to you, um, I remember, you know, we get a call for a 60-year-old having a heart attack or possible heart attack. You kind of draw this picture in your mind. You know, I'm a nurse in the emergency room. I've seen, you know, hundreds of people having cardiac issues, heart attacks, and different cardiac problems. Kind of have this 
picture, you know, of what you're expecting. And I remember getting there on scene to you and you're sitting upright. You're not pale. You're not diaphoretic. You look like a very fit gentleman that skis a lot. You, you're telling us that you have no you have no cardiac problems, right? Yeah. Um, no high blood pressure, no high cholesterol. Don't take any medications, if I recall. Yeah. Going to be interested to see what actually was going on, you know, because you yeah. never really know, obviously, until you get somebody on a heart monitor and right. uh, so on and so forth. But I'm, I'm glad you guys did all the right things, you know, by turning around at the right time, knowing yourself well enough to not keep pushing on because, you know, especially kind of knowing the history of what happened afterwards, you know, once you got to the hospital. Even in the ambulance, as soon as I got in the ambulance and they hooked up their, their 12 lead, the 12 lead, yeah, they immediately said, you know, this is a STEMI. Yep. They notified the hospital and Air, Air, Idaho. Idaho. Air Idaho was notified and they were rolling from Idaho Falls. Aspirin is a well-known over-the-counter drug that has been promoted as a medication people can give at the onset of a heart attack or stroke. It works by reducing blood clotting in order to increase blood flow to the heart or brain. But nitroglycerin, Keegan, a nurse in the ER, explains. Yeah, I was very surprised when we got on scene and had learned that you had taken nitro. Usually, not usually, but oftentimes people carry aspirin in their first aid kit. Yeah. Pretty common medication. You can buy it over the counter. But nitroglycerin is usually reserved for, like you said, somebody that has a known cardiac problem. It's a prescription medication. Uh, there's definitely precautions that you need to take while taking it. Not everyone should take it by no means. Um, so it's right, not sold. Right. It's not sold over the counter. So it was, yeah. I, I was quite surprised that you had taken it, especially when I heard that it was just some bystander that happened to be skiing by you. Yeah, yeah. Good Samaritan. Yes, yes. for sure. Yeah. So, but yeah, nitroglycerin is usually prescribed for people like with cardiac problems. It helps with angina, which is chest pain, and helps. It's like a vasodilator, I believe, helps dilate the blood vessels to help blood flow to the heart, uh, but it does have side effects, you know, especially for somebody that uh, maybe doesn't need it, you know, um, and it can drop blood, tank blood pressure to the point where, you know, your blood pressure is next to nothing, which obviously is not ideal. Right, uh, right. So you got to be careful while taking it, but in your case, it was a fine thing to do. Yeah, it, you know, that was a scary time. I mean, the whole event was scary, but, you know, being in the backcountry and the, the first, it, it was kind of one step at a time. The, you know, the first concern was, how the hell am I going to get out of here? That was, you know, number one. And then you don't know if it's really a heart attack, but I was pretty sure, I, you know, it was just not normal. But then I'm in the ambulance and getting good care, and I am having a heart attack, and they've confirmed that. And so then all the thoughts start going through is, you know, how long is it going to take for me to get there? You know, how is my family going to get notified? What's the next steps? And so as that was going on, the one thing, my wife, when all this was going on, my wife did not know. And so she was in Idaho Falls just knowing we're on a normal ski day. And by the time I was getting to Jackson to, to the ER, Eric called her. So he, and this is the second time he's had to call her that I was injured. So a couple of years ago, I blew my shoulder out and he had to call and on a, you know, morning, he's like, uh, uh, Karen, uh, Dave's okay, but, 
And so he started the call the same way. And so, uh, but he was really shook up, which you can understand. And so he starts to tell her what was going on. And right as that was occurring, I had been in the ER for a few minutes and they were starting to treat me. The ER was calling my wife. So they actually kind of interrupted that call. And so that was nice because he he basically told my wife, Karen Brown, that, you know, your husband's having a heart attack. He's going to the ER. And they contacted her and immediately said, okay, we'll be lifelighting him to Ermac. So her first thought was she was going to have to get in the car and drive to Jackson. Gave her that peace of mind that she wasn't going to be trying to rush to Jackson, you know, to be there at my side. And she had the time waiting and she contacted our kids and let them know what was going on. And she was able to get over to Ermac and she was there when I landed there, you know, getting into the ER and getting treatment and, you know, knowing that I've, I've got, I'm actually having a heart attack that, you know, it's one thing to think it and then another thing to know it. And so they started treating me for it and they did the blood clotting medicine that I think that helped some, but the thing I didn't realize, and now I know is that Jackson does not have a cath lab. So, you know, they, they basically gave me the initial treatments and just prepped me for the flight to Ermac, where I was able to, you know, be flown over, get a stint. And as we saw, I, my right coronary artery was 100% blocked, and the other arteries all looked fine, but it, I did have a completely blocked artery, and they were able to quickly resolve that. And two nights in the hospital and new medications, and I'm doing great. I've just had an amazing outcome, and I thank everybody involved you know, from Eric, my ski partner, who did all the right things, the search and rescue team, which was fabulous. And so good to see, you know, the qualified people and the volunteers. It's just so impressive that so many people volunteer and for our community, getting to the hospital and everything from Jackson all the way over to Idaho Falls. It was great. I remember checking in with the emergency room after I got out of the backcountry and I got back home, and I think you're, if I recall correctly, the emergency room doctor was Dr. Dennis, uh, who's also ironically on search and rescue. And he told us that right when Air Idaho got there, they were putting you on the stretcher for Air Idaho, and you went into uh, complete heart block, okay. um, which is definitely a very critical heart condition. And I think he definitely had the whole emergency room and the flight crew pretty uh, on alert and a little puckered uh, for a period of time because your blood pressure tanked. Yeah. You went into this, your heart rhythm changed to this complete heart block. And I was talking to Dr. Dennis about it. And he said that, you know, we're very fortunate that you're very fortunate that you were able to, you know, get out uh, when you did because he said if that had happened, you were up in mail cabin or somewhere else back in the back country uh, and you went into a heart block like that. There's no way you would have gotten out on your own and that would have been the, yeah. Yeah. yeah your last <clears throat> ski. So yeah, I'm super glad that uh, it turned out the way that it did. And yeah, you turned around and, you know, I think all of us that are active oftentimes get short of breath, if you will, exerting ourselves and skinning up, any mountain or doing any kind of exerting activity, how did you know like this was 
that much different than just a normal, oh, I'm, maybe I'm a little under the weather today or I'm a little short of breath or God, I'm just not feeling it today. Yeah, good good question. It, it, it just continued the shortness of breath. You know, normally this, this was March 29th. So this is late season. We've been skiing a lot. So we're in good shape. And normally if I get out of wind, you know, I stop for a minute or two and I'm good to go. And this just accelerated. It just continued to increase the shortness of breath. And I was feeling tightness in my chest and my arm, kind of my shoulder and my left arm. And it just was giving classic signs. And it was it was different than anything I'd ever felt before. And it was just more. You know, I just, I, I really felt like I couldn't skin 10 feet up the trail. Yeah. And so, you know, on a day trip with a lighter pack, when I actually had to take my pack off and sit down, I've never done that before. Magnitudes above what my normal being winded was. I really have not had any history of medical issues. And so this was out of the blue. And, you know, I, I was amazed because I felt absolutely like a normal backcountry day right up until I lost my breath. You know, skinning back the first mile and a half until we got to Moosebrush and started climbing, it was absolutely normal. I was step for step with Eric. I just was enjoying the day. Started up the hill and all of a sudden it just just hit me. And I was surprised that I really didn't have pain in my chest. Mm -hmm. It was just shortness of breath and some tightness. Mm -hmm. I didn't have sharp pain at all. So I, I never felt you know, lightheaded or dizzy. I just couldn't breathe. The one thing after, you know, I was recovering and I actually got together with Eric and Mike and I, you know, I, I'm questioning whether I want to backcountry ski again and I love it. And I'm, I think I definitely will. But, you know, my first thought was, well, will I be comfortable going backcountry again, having had a heart attack? But then I thought more importantly, Will my ski partners, I need to re-earn their trust that, you know, I'm safe to go skiing with so that I don't, you know, make it up halfway up the mountain and have a heart attack. So that's that's kind of a new thing for me that I'm starting to bike with them again. And uh, we'll we'll see how that all goes so that I can get back in the backcountry. Yeah, I wanted to, the kind of one of the questions I wanted to ask you here as we wrap this up is just like how this incident has changed you as a backcountry skier as a someone who enjoys the outdoors um not just like along with the gear like with the inreach but just in kind of your mentality of of how you approach the mountains if that's changed at all mm -hmm. i i'd say my main approach to the mountains hasn't changed other than a little bit in the the fine tuning of the first aid kit now i do have nitroglycerin personally but also the inReach, making sure we have communication. Our group has always been really conscientious about making sure that people know where we're going when we plan to be back. We check snow conditions. We do pits. You know, we're 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 a pretty careful group, so that hasn't changed much. But you know, the biggest part is enjoying time, family, uh, friends. You know, everything. Time. You know, there's no guarantees about tomorrow, so. You know, enjoy every minute you've got and, and be kind and 
be helpful. You know, having people on the trail that you bump into that are willing to help you, that's important. And being help, you know, being willing to help others. So Thank you for listening to The Fine Line. I'm Matt Hansen. Editing and sound are by Melinda Binks. Our theme song is by Ann and Pete Sibley, with additional music produced and recorded by Ben Winship. The interviews were recorded in the studios of KHOL 89.1 FM in downtown Jackson. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Jackson Hole backcountry. Learn more at backcountryzero.com.